think they're going to do just fine, don't you? Very nice. Very nice indeed. Guys, i got to admit it. You guys did a good job. Those fellas up there stood up there and sang out good. And I tell you what, that, that part was pretty, that was high up there, a little few of those notes, weren't they? You guys nailed it. Way to go. All right, take your Bible. Well, I'll tell you what, don't take your Bible yet, I guess. Let me see where we're at here. Eh. Yeah, First Timothy chapter 3. Let's turn over there, would you? First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. We're going to go ahead and read in verse 8 tonight. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. We're going to read through verse 13. <clears throat> Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they have, excuse me, for they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now again, we are in the book of Timothy and we've been working on Timothy for some time on Wednesday nights and of course we took just a a short break here the last four weeks, and we'll look forward to another break in the month of April. But we're back on it again as we come back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Timothy, we noted and have noted throughout these months that he was the son of a Gentile father, and yet he was also the son of a believing grandmother and mother. And we noted how he was influenced by the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, how ultimately his early life would be influenced to the point where he would grow up to be uh, become one of the Apostle Paul's greatest, greatest co-laborers. And um, early on in the, the letter uh, that's being written to Timothy, the Apostle Paul makes it keenly aware that there are some doctrinal concerns, that there are some issues taking place, that there's some, a lack of doctrinal purity in the church. And as a matter of fact, that's why he sent Timothy to Ephesus in order to uh, basically expose and to extinguish the heresy that was taking place there. So the Apostle Paul points out that there's some Judaizers there that need addressed. And there's also the misapplication and the misunderstanding of the law itself. He'd go on to charge Timothy and he would tell him that he had to stand amidst the many obstacles of faith. That although he was a young man, he was still quite capable and quite able to overcome those obstacles. And because he had the Lord Jesus Christ on his side, it didn't matter whether or not the congregation was older and maybe up in years. The fact was that he had the power of God in his life and the ability to lead because he had Jesus on his side. And he would do that. He would stand and he would meet the challenge and he would ultimately overcome. As pastor, of course, Timothy, like any other pastor, was responsible for the spiritual condition and climate of the church. And sadly, there were those in the church in his day, and unfortunately, maybe even in our day, that have put away or thrust away the faith. What we're saying basically is this, that some folks had literally not just... Um, rejected their personal faith, like kind of slipped from their faith, but actually rejected the faith itself, that body of belief that we believe. They turned their back on the body of truth. 
And so here Timothy was facing these obstacles and facing this heresy and dealing with some of these issues and problems. And the Apostle Paul, his mentor, was now writing a letter and trying to encourage him and trying to exhort him and and empower him to be able to get the job done uh, through the Word of God. And so we see Timothy striving and we see Timothy succeeding. And God blessed his ministry and God blessed Ephesus as a result of it. Now, we note the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, and we noted that it's divided into two major sections. We said how to build an effective church and then how to become an effective Christian. Well, we've been dealing with how to build an effective church, and we're almost to the end of that now. As we come to the end of chapter 3, we're going to be moving on here pretty soon and dealing with how to become an effective Christian. But so far, we've covered some things like how to build an effective church. And we said, well, the church and its doctrine is important. And so we said, we talked about the loss of truth. We talked about the law of God, the love of Christ, and the life of faith that uh, is involved in this process. And then, of course, we touched on the church and its devotion. And we talked about the practice of faith. And then we even talked about the place of women. And now we've come to the church and its duties. And we touched on earlier, before we started our series on uh, creation versus evolution, on the qualifications of the pastor or the, or the bishop, if you will. And tonight, we want to continue our study and deal with the qualifications uh, of the deacon. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be discussing deacons tonight. So in our passage, of course, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8-13, through 13, we are introduced to the deacon and to his responsibilities here. Now, the word diakonos needs to be distinguished from other common New Testament words that are translated servant. And another word that's translated servant other than diakonos is a word called doulos, and, or doulos. And, and so there's a difference. Now, doulos is the, the word that has to do with a bond slave, a servant in the sense of being a bond slave. Diakonos is the word that's being used here in our passage. So, for instance, if a writer uses the word doulos, in his mind, excuse me, he has in his mind the relationship between the servant and his master. So, you know, if, if I use the word servant and I'm using the word doulos, I'm, I'm talking about the relationship between the actual servant and his master. Okay, but in this particular case, the guy using the word diakonos, when Paul uses it, he's writing to Timothy concerning the ministry of the deacon. And he's, he's talking about this idea of the relationship between the servant and his work. Because, see, the ministry of a deacon must be a servant. He is a servant of the church. Therefore, he has to be willing to work. And so that's why the emphasis is on diakonos versus doulos. He's not the bond slave in that sense. He's actually, it's in relationship to the servant and his work. And that's what we're going to find about a deacon is that his life is wrapped around the work of God. His life is uh, focused on the word of God and the work of God as well. Now, Although the word deacon doesn't really show up in the book of Acts chapter 6, I'm convinced that 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 is really what those seven men that were chosen were. I'm convinced that the seven men in the book of Acts chapter 6 were deacons. Look, if you will, at Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Again, we're going to talk about deacons a little bit. So I I want to start right there, and then I'm going to break that down real quick, and then we're going to get right right back into our our, our, uh, passage here in the book of 1 Timothy. As you're turning there and uh, as you find your place, let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, we come to you. Help us now, Lord, tonight. Be with me, Lord. I need you. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. I 
I desperately need you, Father. I can't do this myself. I don't have anything to give your people except that which you give to me. So, Lord, please be gracious tonight. Lord, just bless us, and may our hearts be stirred and encouraged, and may we be moved to do more for you. Father, not more in the sense of just activity, but more in the sense of devotion. Father, we need you, Lord. As we draw closer to you, Lord, we'll be moved to do more. Father, as our love for you grows greater, Father, we will certainly be motivated, Father, to live according to your word and to strive to, Father, please you and to meet the needs of others. We love you, Lord. We need you. In Christ's name, amen. So Acts chapter 6, I want you to look, first of all, verses 1 and 2. As we consider this concept or if we consider this position of deacon, first verses 1 and 2, in those days... When the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is, not, is it not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables? Wherefore, brethren... Excuse me, let's stop right there for a second. Notice it says, Then the, the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said... Is it not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables? Right there we see the position of a deacon. The position. And it is that of a servant. Right off the bat, it's very clear. The Bible tells us simply this. Should we leave the word of God and serve tables? So it's obvious what the implication is. Is that instead of the disciples serving the tables and and providing the meal, so to speak, the deacon would take that position as servant and do that work themselves. He talks about the daily ministration. There were those that were being overlooked, obviously, in the daily uh, distribution of funds and the distribution of food and things like that that were taking place. And as a result of that, we see here that they're seeking out some men that will be able to take care of the business of administering or administrating over that. Again, they were to serve tables. That's nothing more than a servant, very simple. Someone says, well, that's not a very big deal. Why does everybody want to be a deacon? Well, listen, being a deacon is a spiritual position. It's a great position if indeed you're qualified and if indeed you have the heart for it. And so there's nothing wrong with it, uh, but it is that of a servant. Again, too many times we like to think about positions in the church as being some place of, of preeminence. You know, we're, we're up in the ranks. That's not what it's about in the church. Uh, that's not what Jesus was about. He wasn't about being, you know, just elevated in the eyes of everybody for the sake of that. He came to earth as a servant, the Bible says. That's why he, was, he allowed mankind to spit upon him. And that's why he didn't respond the way we would. And that's why he allowed him to pluck his beard out and, and beat him with a cat of nine tails. And all along he could have wiped them all out, but he didn't because he came as a servant. See, we've got to understand that being a servant means you get kicked around, you get stepped on, you get treated badly. And then we wonder why when we get treated poorly by other people around us that we're serving, we get our our dander up and we get all upset. And we wonder why God doesn't bless us. Maybe it's because we really aren't serving people to serve them or serving people to get something. And we've got to be careful with that. Now, fortunately, in our churches, we serve here. I, I think we have a gracious people. I don't think you have to worry too much. If you're serving as a Sunday school teacher, I don't think you get too much grief. Every once in a while, a parent will blame you for something that happened in the class. You know, that happens. Because they're not there and they assume their kids are perfect. Am I allowed to say that stuff? That, does that stuff happen in churches? Anybody ever been a Sunday school teacher in here? I, I think we have no support here. But I think there's a lot of you used to be Sunday school. You know, at one time we had 40 Sunday school teachers? 40. Every Sunday, 40 teachers. 
Now listen, that's going to happen again. We're going to need a lot of people to step up. That means a lot of people are going to have to be out soul winning. It means a lot of people are going to have to be servants again. Doing the work of God. But nonetheless, this is a position of servitude. Notice also, verse 3 through 4. Notice this as well. It goes on to say, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we saw the position of a deacon, that of a servant. The purpose of the deacon was to wait tables and free up the pastor. That was their purpose, to make the pastor's life a little, a little bit more focused. So he didn't have to stretch himself so thin. He could focus on the Word of God. He could focus on the, the message of God. He could focus on the, the souls of mankind and the need for the preparation and teaching and training of the people of God. So he didn't get bound up in all the daily routine and all the daily administration of what goes on. Listen, I'm going to tell you, it takes a lot of time to administrate. It takes a lot of time to do those things. You know, um, you know, one of the things when, when you know, I've, I've hired some staff, and when I get staff in, I, I ask them what their strengths are. One of them is, you know, what's your strength? That, you know, I, I, I evaluate their administra- administrative strength. Do you know that's one of the most difficult things to find in somebody? Somebody that's truly detailed-oriented, somebody that actually is, is organized in their mind that can function and make sure all the details are taken care of so when in the end you don't go back and find that there's part of the job missing or not done. That's a very difficult thing to find in people today. Well, these are men here that were going to do the details. The pastor wasn't going to have to worry about the job. Not, he didn't have to worry about it getting started, but he didn't have to worry about it getting done either. So he never had to think about it. He just knew those widows would be taken care of because the men we're picking out are men that are going to start and finish the job, and they're going to take that burden off my plate, and I'm not going to have to be concerned about it. And there were 12 of these guys running around that were apostles at the time or were preachers at the time in this church at Jerusalem, a church, obviously, that was running quite a few people, and they're saying, listen, we got a lot of work to do. There are people getting saved left and right. The needs are growing in the ministry, and we don't really have somebody that we can trust to take care of all that business, and so we're going to choose out seven. Uh, just go ahead and choose out seven. And so the congregation got together along with the leadership and they chose out seven men. And so we see these men and we note, first of all, their position, that of a servant, their purpose to wait tables and free up the pastor. And then three, notice this in verse five. It says, and the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost and Philip and uh, Procurus. And and this is where I like to have the singles read. And uh, those guys there. And so anyway, they picked these seven fellows. Now, here we find the power of deacons, the power of the deacon. Notice the, the, the spiritual power of these men, their example, their spiritual example even. These deacons were the best soul winners in the house. They're the best soul winners in the house. Look at their lives. They're, they're the most faithful. And they were the hardest workers. You say, really? Well, let's consider just an example of one of them. Let's take Stephen, for instance. I don't know how long it was after he was chosen to be a deacon that he stood before uh, the multitude, the council, and those multitude of Jews, and he stood up and proclaimed the word of God with such authority and power that they ultimately killed him. I mean, that's the kind of men that were deacons in that day. I mean, these were godly men. These were men with the Holy Ghost all over them. The Bible says in Acts 6, 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Think about Philip himself. Philip is also one of the first, he's the first missionary that we really read about. He's also one of those, one of those men. 
And we see so many of these different people going out and doing the work of God in a mighty way. Even though they were just simply deacons, uh, you'd have never known that they, weren't, they, were, they were really close to being pastors, if you ask me. Uh, it was amazing. Now, Acts 6.15, And all that sat by the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. I haven't seen that face around here yet. But anyway, I don't see it in the mirror any mornings either. But nonetheless, unless my wife is standing beside me. Is she in here? Oh, she is. I got some kudos on that. That's a good one. All right. The power of the deacon. So we, we noticed a couple of things. And finally, uh, we're going we're gonna to get back. But we see here in this passage, again, the position, the purpose, and the power of a deacon. Boy, I'll tell you what, those are some interesting th- things. Now let's go back to 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to look at the prerequisites of the deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the prerequisites. What are, what are some of the qualifications? What, what, what characteristics do they have to possess in order to be a deacon? And uh, so we're going to note that now. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13, we already read it. But we're going to note just a couple of things. Number one, the first thing is the Bible says that likewise the deacons, uh, must the deacons be grave. Again, that has to do with being solemn or sober, serious. The office is a serious one. It's not for some guy that's a jokester or a uh, you know, uh, funny guy that's going around putting practical jokes on people all the time, so to speak. Not that you can't have a little bit of fun, but this is for somebody that takes the Christian life extremely serious. And when it's time for preaching and it's time for services and it's time for soul winning and it's time for serving, they're doing that. They're not messing around because that's business. It's serious to them. And so we got this, 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 they have to be grave, the Bible says. Not only that, but not given to much wine. Um, oh, not double-tongued. Excuse me, I'm jumping ahead. I can't wait to get to that one. Not double-tongued. So what's it mean, not double-tongued? Well, we've heard of, uh, he's not fork-tongued, you know. Uh, some of our Indian friends, I've got some Indian in me, so I can say those things because I'm not being, you know, I've got some Indian in me, so it's cool. I can say not fork-tongued and all that stuff, you know, and, Chief Wahoo and stuff, that's not politically incorrect for me because I'm an Indian. And so anyway, I've got some Indian blood running through my veins. And so, not double-tongued. Double-tongued. What does that mean? When they used to say, he, he speak with forked tongue. We knew what that meant. We knew that what he was talking about was is that the white man was saying one thing here and wrote it down on maybe a piece of paper and then turned around and did something totally opposite. Didn't keep his word. Didn't follow through. And so what we're talking about is they're not two-faced. They say what they mean, they mean what they say. They don't stand in front of one person and say, yeah, this is how I see it and this is what I think, and then go to the other person and say, yeah, yeah, that's how I see it and that's what I think. And then finally you, they get together and they say, yeah, he supports this and he believes in that. And he goes, no, he doesn't. He believes this and he supports this. Uh, you can't be that kind of person and be a deacon. You can't do that. You've got to always be consistent in that, not double-tongued. And then we go on to not giving to much wine. And this is why I'd love to be a deacon. But anyway, no. Okay, some of you didn't catch that, right? You're just really not thinking, are you? Okay, so anyway, not giving to much wine. Well, I took some time to, to, to really work on this a little bit, but to preserve the testimony and integrity of the pastor, he, was, he, didn't have the, the, he wasn't given the opportunity, even the slightest opportunity, to um, you know, give the appearance of evil. Pastor wasn't even allowed to give the appearance of evil, not even in the least. I mean, no chance at all. Therefore, he wasn't permitted any wine. We saw that early on. He, he was not permitted any wine at all. He says, no wine, that kind of thing. 
And so, um, on the other hand, the deacon, he was extended discretion in this area. Now, before you all jump on the bandwagon and go, oh, you're teaching that deacons can drink. Hold on a second. Just give me a second. But the deacon in this day and age was given, extended some discretion in the area. Now, it's got to be remembered. This is very important when you're dealing with the New Testament, that in New Testament times, as well as a number of times in human history, uh, there wasn't a lot of very pure, good drinking water. It just wasn't available. And so what they would do is often is that they would um, take this, um, uh, what water they did purify, what they did have that would ultimately be cleaned, and they would mix it with wine. And so there was a mixture of wine and water. And so what that did was, is often it would, um, it would, it would take down the, the, the level of alcohol in it to the point where you'd have to probably drink a, a lot. I mean, a lot. Sometimes it was mixed as much as 20 to 1. Other times it was mixed maybe as low as maybe 4 to 1, that kind of thing. So we understand that the wine was mixed and so forth. And so I don't know that, I don't see anywhere where the Christian, you know, in this case, the deacon's allowed to get plastered or anything like that. But I do believe that he was allowed to drink some of that from the vine. Now listen, uh, the Nazarite wasn't allowed to drink anything from the vine. The pastor here, he's being told, you can't drink any of that wine stuff. Stay away from it. But the deacon, he was allowed to drink a little, as it says here, not much wine. Well, that would, I think that would qualify. Watered-down mixture would be great for him. That would be perfect. Now, here's the thing. That means he's given a little bit of latitude. Okay, somebody could say, hey, he's drinking wine. And he'd say, you know, well, you know, it's not, I'm not going to get drunk by this. You know, this is just normal drinking wine. This isn't drunk drinking wine. <laughs> it's a big difference. So the passage, again, isn't endorsing drinking alcohol either. See, because some might say this. Some might surmise it this way. Well, the pastor's not permitted to drink any wine. The deacon, he's not allowed to have much wine. Therefore, if you're just a church member, you can drink whatever you want. Wouldn't that make sense? To me, it makes sense. If the pastor who's not allowed to, you know, he's got to stay from all appearance of evil completely. He's not allowed to have, even hold anything that's wine in his hand. He can't even be tempted in the least bit. The, the, the deacon, he's allowed to give, at least hold that in his hand potentially. He's allowed to drink that at, at supper. It's mixed. It's not, it's not alcoholic drinking, drunk wine. No one's allowed to get drunk in the Christian life. No one's allowed to be drinking anything that's going to cause them to lose sight of their faculties or be opened up to, to Satan. But in those days, they did. They mixed wine. They had those kind of things taking place. And just because it was called wine doesn't mean it's the wine of our day. It's a totally different issue. I'm, I'm, you know, I get weary of the questions, you know, well, Jesus created and made wine and all that stuff. Okay, yeah, Jesus made alcoholic wine so everybody could get drunk. And then he told us that if we drink it, we're stupid and we're dumb. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus warn us against drinking anything that was strong like that, they can get us drunk and then turn around and make it for us and allow it to have. And someone says, well, the word in the Greek uh, means this and it means this. And okay, yeah, whatever. You go ahead. You be the scholar you want to be. But what I do know is this. Jesus is pretty consistent with things. Now, I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I know one thing. I know that not one of us in this room are at liberty to get to, to drink anything that's going to cause us to lose sight of our faculties. And they've proven already. You drink one beer, you've already lost some of them. So I don't know how you, how you, you can figure that out however you want, but beer is 7.3%, 7.2%. And so if you mix that down with half water and half beer, that'd make it 3.1%. say 3.1%. And then if you mix it down by four times, then that's going to bring it down below 2%. And then if you mix it 20 times, that's going to make it really, really, really low. And I really think you'd have to drink a lot of that to get drunk. Do you get where I'm going with this? So the deacon was allowed to have a little, it was okay. He was allowed not much wine. 
Okay? So he's, we're not talking about, so he can drink a little wine. He can, at supper and at dinner, he can drink wine at home with his family or out at having a meal. He can go ahead and have a, a glass of wine. He's good to go. Just the pastor can't. Well, the church members could have four or five because they're not deacons or pastors. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Somebody says, well, I don't know. Well, let me tell you this. I'll, I'll be honest with you. As kings and priests, we talked about this last time, and those that are committed to the highest level of devotion to Christ, we're really not afforded the freedom to drink wine or any other alcoholic beverage that could lead to drunkenness that ultimately lead to the destruction of our testimony. And furthermore, I think it's interesting to note this as well. We're not given the right to exercise liberties at the expense of another brother's well-being either. Romans chapter 14, verse 21 says, It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. And someone says, well, that's for your weaker brother. It didn't say wicker brother there. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of young people in this room, and I'll guarantee you, if youth said it was okay to drink, a lot of them people, they'll go off the deep end. What the parents do in moderation, the children always do in excess. Let me tell you something. You better be real careful with that stuff in your home. If you've got it in your home, you need to get it out. Amen. <clears throat> so, I mean, someone says, well, that doesn't satisfy my questions. Well, then you figure it out on your own, because that's about as good as I can get. I, I get tired of fighting with the alcohol issue because to me it just makes no sense that Christians want to focus their attention on alcohol, something that would cause them to, to maybe open their mind up to Satan or to the influence of the world. I don't get it. I don't get that stuff. After looking what it does to our families and our culture and our world, we still want it in our homes as believers. You're nuts. You're out of your gourd. Thank you, preacher. We love that simple straight talk. That sounds like a phone commercial. But anyway... <clears throat> So nonetheless, grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. Not greedy of filthy lucre. That means he can't be fixated on wealth or finances. He can't be focused on it. When a person gets their eyes on money, guess what they're not on? God. And so a deacon can't be one that worries about how nice his house is and how big his cars are and how much money he makes at work. And that's the most important thing in life is you've got to have a good education, good money, and good retirement plan, and good second house, and good this. And good. Man, money's important, preacher. It's all about what the money. We've got to make sure money, money's important. That's not what it's all about, folks. If you haven't figured it out yet, people with money are miserable. Now, I'd like to try having a little bit of it once and see how I wear it, but the fact is, is, that, is that, honestly, money doesn't make anybody happy, and deacons cannot be focused on money. If you, listen, because somebody comes in the church and they're very successful as a business person and they make a lot of money, that doesn't qualify them as a deacon. That's not what it's about. It's a spiritual position. So we have to be careful. Now, there's nothing wrong with making a good living. There's nothing wrong with being careful with your finances. You ought to be all those things. But if money is so important to you that it causes you to direct your attention off of God, then that disqualifies you as a deacon. When you're fixated on the finances or on money, you're done. You don't qualify anymore. You know, sadly enough, it's interesting about congregations. The first thing they want to find out is, you know, they want their pastors humble. You hear about this a lot. Keep your pastor humble, you know, financially, you know, and all that good stuff. But it's funny how whenever the deacon stuff comes up, all of a sudden everybody's got a little bit of money and influence in their personal job, in the worldly jobs, somehow think that qualifies them to have influence in the church. And unfortunately, the people usually, Pastor, how come so-and-so's not? They could probably help us a lot on that board because they really know a lot about money and 
Yeah, well, they miss church uh, every other uh, Sunday night. They miss church on Wednesdays. They miss church here. They don't go out soul winning. They don't do this because they're so involved in making money that they can't even have, find time to serve the Lord. And you want them to lead the church in that regard? You want them to be a posi- in a position of, a th- of, of leadership in that regard? That makes no sense to me. If the pastor did that, you'd say fire him. And you'd be right to do so. But God says the same, the same qualification in this sense applies to the deacon. He can't be fixated on the wealth or on finances. And again, um, I'm not talking about making a good living and, and being wise and telling kids to get good educations. I, I think that's all good. And by the way, young men, I think you need to read a book. If, if there's this book. It's, uh, what's it called, Dean? We're reading it for our singles. What's it called? Uh, from the Coal Mines to Gold Mine. From the Coal Mines to Gold yeah. Mine. Dr. Um, Anderson from down, Hiles Anderson years ago wrote a book. He was a, a multimillionaire, but he never, never, ever fixated on his money. He always was faithful to God, always faithful to soul winning, always in church every time the doors were open. He didn't allow it to take him away. As a matter of fact, there's over 30 million people that have come to Christ as a result of his investment. Uh, well, it's more than that. It's 80-some million. It was 30 million he spent. That's what it was. He's given 30 million to missions, over 30 million. So praise the Lord for that, you know. So there's nothing wrong with that. So here's my advice to you. If you're not going to be a preacher, make all the money you can and give tons of it to missions and to your local church. That's what you ought to be doing with it. That's exactly what you ought to be doing with it. But anyway, so nonetheless, preachers aren't allowed to say those things, are they? But anyway, I just did. Um, and, and read the book, and he'll tell you to do the same thing. Um, matter of fact, you know, it's interesting about him. Um, well, well, you won't read the book. That's right. I was going to say, we'll get talk about this Sunday. But it's interesting about him. He went to his pastor, and he, he said, Pastor, I feel like I'm being led to the ministry. And the guy said, you, just make all, you need to make all the money you can and give it to God's work. So he said, okay, that's what I'll do then. And he did. Yeah. And, man, I tell you what, his impact has so surpassed the multitude of multitudes of preachers in the world. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay? And, and so... Uh, there might be something to be said for pastoral leadership even. But nonetheless, moving on. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Well, what in the world are we talking about here? Well, the deacon has to be a person who is competent, who is conscious, and who is consistent concerning mysteries of the faith. The mysteries of the faith would be something like this. The mystery of the kingdom. You read about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew. That's one of the mysteries. You read about Israel's blindness in Romans chapter 11. He needs to understand those things. He needs to understand the mystery of the rapture of the church and the mystery of the church itself. You know, Jew and Gentile together. Have a grasp on that. Being, uh, uh, having a good conscience about those things. Being able to not only defend it, but be able to stand up for it uh, in that regard. The mystery of iniquity. How, how Satan be- it becomes antichrist. You know, that kind of thing. He needs to have a grasp on those issues, those doctrinal issues. Mystery of godliness. God becomes man. And at least, I mean, we can't fully comprehend that nor understand that. We know that. It's a mystery. But he, he with good conscience, has grasped the truth and is able to stand up and defend it and to be able to speak about it and to continue to move forward in his walk of faith and bring others with him. The mystery of Babylon in chapter 17 of Revelation all of these things are mysteries that the Bible speaks of and that things that this deacon needs to have a handle on if, he truly, if he's going to be a deacon. These men need those kind of, that kind of Bible background. They need to be grounded in those kind of matters. I've got to believe that Stephen and Philip, those that were going out and preaching and proclaiming the gospel, had a handle on these issues. These men were filled with the Spirit of God. 
They walked in the Lord. They didn't have television. They didn't have phones, and they didn't have TVs and, uh, or, or uh, Internet, and they didn't have all the things that we have to distract us today. You know, they spent their time doing the work of God in the Word of God. That's what they did night and day. We fall so miserably short compared to men like this and ladies like this. And we think we're spiritual, but if, you would do, if we'd go back to the early church and recognize how little time they spent doing things that we would consider comfortable or leisure, we would be amazed. They were lucky just to make it every day in their life. Um, it, it, was, it was work just to live in those days. I think sometimes the devil has deceived us into believing somehow that we're really something. And maybe we're not all that after all. But uh, that's maybe just me thinking that. But um, holding the mysteries of the faith in a pure conscience. Also, this deacon or the man that's going to take that position needs to be proved and blameless. Proved and blameless. Um, that means of good character over time. We talked about this a little bit with the, the pastor and that kind of thing. But the deacon also has to be the same blameless in that sense. So there's a good statement. You might want to use this statement with, with a deacon in this case. The deacon must be proved before promoted. Okay, before he takes the position of deacon, he needs to be proved. And, and so we have some examples of proving in the Bible. For instance, we have Moses. Remember, Moses is 40 years in Israel, or excuse me, in Egypt. And for 40 years, there he is in Egypt, and man, he's having a, he's having a bang-up time. He's learning everything that the, the Egyptians have to offer. I mean, his education is out of this world. And so he is being trained, and he's being prepared for a life as an Egyptian. But we note that, of course, his heart turns toward the Lord and toward the people of God, of which he was one. And next thing you know, instead of being a missionary... He becomes a murderer. Instead of bringing the truth to the people, he brings, you know, this tragedy to them. And so we see that Moses now, he, he's on the backside of the desert now. Forty years he's on the backside of the desert. It looked like he would be elevated almost in a sense to some high position in Egypt. Now here he is in the wilderness, a big zero, a nothing, so to speak. And, and we know that he begins his family there. He's watching sheep. He's just taking a very humble position and God is proving him and God is working in his life and God is just doing a miracle in his heart and preparing him for the day when he would one day then be promoted. We also note this same situation with David himself. David, of course, is it, it's, it's 16 years of age. It appears that he was anointed by Samuel to be king. But it would be 14 years later before ultimately he stood before Judah as king. In the meantime, all that time, he, he's, I mean, he's waiting, he's warring, he's running, he's working, right up to the time where he's ultimately elevated again and promoted. And then it's another seven to eight years before he's promoted again and put over all of Israel. So see, there was that time of proving in his life. And here's a young man that's cutting the head off of a giant, but yet he's not ready to rule the nation yet. And when someone would say, man, they were nuts for not promoting him. What do you mean? God was preparing him. And so there's an element of preparation and proving that goes into this. Proved and blameless. The character has to be proven. You know, so we have to make sure it's not just an overnight thing. It's not just some new fellow that showed up in the church and, boy, promote him. And, 
you know, that whole kind of thing going on. Then a husband of one wife, we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but to stay with the deacon himself. The husband of one wife ruling children and house well. Again, that's the same as the pastor again. So the qualification's the same. Now listen, this one, and I'm going to be frank with you, I, I really believe this one disqualifies most pastors from ministry. Uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, about, I'm about fed up with the fallout of the ministry. I, and I don't appreciate it. It's bothering the life out of me. But you want to know what most of it is? Most of it is there were good men that knew the Bible well, but that's it. There were problems in their homes. And I don't mean big problems. I'm talking about there were just some issues, and those things grow. Let me tell you something. Right here in this room today, it can look like it is clicking, buddy. Everything's just wonderful. Man, I'm in charge. Got things going in my house. but we're not disciplining our children like we should. We're not taking control of our household like we ought to. We're allowing certain influences in our life and in our home and our family that don't belong. And Satan wheels his way in there and begins to get a stronghold in the life of one of our kids or in the stronghold of our wife or even our own heart. And I'm telling you what, leadership is not just about saying, I'm on the throne. Leadership's about taking responsibility for everything in that place and saying, you know what, I'm just going to have to deal, deal with it. Got to stand up and face it. It's going to be uncomfortable maybe, but I got to do what's right. And I got to please him first above everyone else. It happens in homes of pastors. It happens in homes of deacons. It happens in homes of church members. And listen, if it's clear that the man is not an authority and he's not ruler of his home, he cannot be a deacon. Can't be a deacon. It's just the Bible. That's what it says. Okay, and, and that's important. And that's why I told you, if, if ever something ever happens to me or if God calls me to the mission field or whatever, when a, somebody comes through here, the, the thing you better check more than anything else is his family. Don't just ask him or his wife. You better get talking to people in that church where he's from and find out what they really think. I'd send a spy in there or something. And I'd start finding out what's going on with his kids. I'd want to know what's, what's happening. I mean, when he says to his children, come here, son, does he come immediately or does he hem-haul around? So if he hem-hauls, he don't belong in this pulpit. You go ahead and invite him into your church and let him pastor your church and he'll run his church like he does his home. And there'll be, there'll be insubordination among the crowd. And you'll wonder why there's so much trouble in your church. Maybe because he lets it go on in his home and it just kind of spills over in his church house. And that's true with a deacon. A deacon can't be in the same. He's got to be just like the pastor. He's got to have that thing clicking. It's got to be going. Why do you think pastors struggle so much with choosing deacons? Because they don't meet the qualifications. Everybody thinks they meet them. But the Bible says different usually. There are very few men that meet these qualifications, folks. Very few. Okay, now as a pastor, I'm going to say that because, you know, every, you know, yeah, it's true. Thank you. It's true. It, it is true. Now, again, I, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to be honest here. And, and, and obviously, um, how many were in a church at Jerusalem? They believe right now between 10 and 50,000. Choose out seven. Choose out seven. What, what do you mean, choose out seven? Why only seven? 
Maybe it was harder to find these kind of men than we think, even in that day. Now again, husbands and one wife, good degree, good degree, good standing, good reputation, trusted among people. Not just the church people, but trusted among outward in the world, trusted. Um, good degree, uh, excuse me, uh, boldness. Again, that kind of is an off, it kind of, as he uses his office well, he's going to have this boldness, this confidence, this courageousness, this godliness, as we've discussed already, uh, both witnessing and living for God and in, even in the Christian life. There'll be a boldness there. Um, and th- then he turns his attention to wives. And he says, okay, now we've got to get to the nitty-gritty. Let's deal with it now. And I'll tell you what, this is a, this is a bad one too. Okay, um, um, this is important, okay? It's so important. The ministry at Community Baptist Temple would not be what it is without my wife. And I know that's a cliche. I know you hear it all the time. You hear stuff like that. But, But my wife allowed me to pastor Community Baptist Temple. She didn't try to pastor this church. Number two, she didn't try to tell me what to do ever when it comes to this ministry. I'd seek her advice. I would ask her for wisdom. I'd seek her in, you know, uh, just into insights. Uh, I'm, I, would, I would love doing that with my wife because she's very wise in so many ways, and, and I love to hear what she has to say, and, and that's important. I think a, a man would be a fool not to seek the advice of his wife. I think he'd be foolish. I mean, he, she's your help me, you know. But by the same token, she never once tried to tell me what I should do here, how I should run this, who I should let do this, blah, blah, blah. No way. She, I may say, you have any suggestions? What do you think about? Oh, yeah, well, I, I think maybe. And I said, well, okay. And then and I said, well, I'd rather. And she said, well, that's your decision. You know, it's fine. I mean, I never felt pressure that way. Um, I, I worked as many hours as I had to work to make this thing happen. I never had pressure. My wife, well, please come home. You're always doing that. I never had that stuff going. Never had that going. I mean, my wife was wise enough to say it sometimes. Hey, the kids need to see their daddy. You've been gone quite a bit. Could you maybe spend a little bit extra time with them here over the next week or two? And I'd say, yeah, let me work on that. And we'd work on that and try to kind of sure some foundation up before I blew the whole thing apart. And so we understood that. But, I mean, she, she wasn't always, whoo. I'm going to tell you something. The wife of a deacon is very, very important here. Because remember what a deacon's job is to serve that means everybody's going to be pulling. There's going to be needs everywhere. And, and this is a tough one. This is a tough one. Do you, you, know what, you know what the deacon does in a sense? Here's what happens. He becomes, he becomes every older lady's son. That, that means there might be times that she needs him. Well, if you already have a problem with him serving his parents, it ain't going to work out if he's a deacon then because it's going to mean many-fold. You get where I'm going with this a little bit? So it's, it takes a wife that's supportive of this. You can't just be, yeah, go ahead and be a deacon at our church. That's cool. Count some money. It's cool. No, a deacon is a position of servitude. It's a work position. So the deacon's wife and him will serve together in this mess. When I say mess, I mean, you're going to have some things going on, and, and you're going to have to deal with some things, and you're going to be working together. So she's got to be as honorable as he is. She can't be below him. She has to be equal with him spiritually. They have to be pulling their weight together. They have to be serving side by side. It's got to be together. She's got to be grave. The Bible says grave, serious, calm, cool, and, and collective. She's got to be, she's got to be ruling her, her emotions well. Um, not a slanderer. Not a slanderer. The word means accuser or slander. Deacon's wives, 
The Bible says must not be slanders, and that word translated slanders is diabolos. Well, how's that sound to you? You're catching on real quick, aren't you? Which means accuser or slander. Guess what? That's a name for who? The devil. That's, that's a name for the devil. So the particular title is used some 30 times in the New Testament. And guess what? In the Garden of Eden, you know what the devil did? He slandered God when he was talking to man. Do you know what the devil did in the book of Job? He slandered man when he was talking to God. So in Genesis, he's slandering God to man. And, and, and in, in, in Job, he's slandering man to God. He's a slanderer. He's always, you know, on it. So when God insists that the deacon's wife not be a slanderer, what he's really saying or implying is this, that a slanderous woman does the devil's work, and therefore her husband is not qualified to be a deacon. That's, that's what is the Bible's teaching us. She's doing the work of Satan. Therefore, he is not qualified. Sober. The word used for sober here means vigilant. She needs to be steady, exhibiting self-control. And then faithful. Dependable to her husband. Dependable to Christ. Dependable to the church and to the cause of Christ. Now, I don't know if I want to touch all this. I got to get you out of here. Let me just say this, and I'm going to close. I don't want to get back to this next week. The office of a deacon was born out of need, not necessity. Need, not necessity. Some people have the idea that churches aren't complete unless they have deacons. Do you know that the original church, the church in uh, Jerusalem, was going perfectly fine without deacons? Matter of fact, they'd grown to probably some surmise 50,000 without a deacon. So you don't have to have deacons to have your church structure proper. That's a modern-day thing. That's something that is traditional in churches many times. Churches that have 25 people have three deacons. I mean, I don't get that. It makes no sense. It's not biblical. It's not scriptural. Um, John R. Rice opens his commentary in Acts 6 by saying this, It is obvious that there were thousands of members in the church of Jerusalem. They had not elected deacons until deacons were needed. They were not needed to complete the organization of the church, for this church had been functioning grandly for an extended time without deacons. So he goes on to explain that. Now, the office of a deacon, number two, was created to relieve the burden of the pastor. We noted that. We've already talked about that. Widows. What is a widow? Somebody without a husband. You've got to understand something about widows in those days, too, and the church early on. They took all their money and they sold their possessions, and you know what they did? They threw it into one kitty. So what happened was is that people then in the church were then trusting the disciples to distribute the funds and the, the necessary supplies as needed. So somebody had a bunch of things. He, he gave all, all of his up, and then we went ahead and distributed evenly among. Now listen to me. That's called communism, and it didn't work. It didn't work in the church either, by the way. It did not work in the church. Socialism did not work. Redistribution of wealth does not work. You know what started happening? The early church people started getting upset. You want to know why? Because they felt some weren't pulling their weight. And so all of a sudden, they're getting their deeds met, and they're over here going, hey, they're not even working. They're not even doing their part. Boy, it just blew up. The only problem was you have some widows now. And they, had, they bought into this thing. 
They don't even have a husband to, to go out and make a living. They're just depending solely and completely on this church. And guess what? Some of these Grecian widows were being neglected in the administration. Therefore, they weren't receiving the, what they needed to live. And so what had to happen was they went ahead and got some deacons and said, you're going to be responsible to make sure everybody's getting what they're supposed to get when they're supposed to get it, and you're going to have to meet the need of those deacons. Why? Uh, those, those, excuse me, those uh, widows. And those widows didn't have children. Those widows didn't have family in many cases. Or if they did, they were unsaved and disowned them. Had nothing to do with them now. And so they were on their own. They needed somebody to care for them and meet their needs. So the deacon became dad. The deacon became husband. The deacon became grandpa, so to speak. Took care of the needs of the household. The son that she didn't have anymore. Met the needs. Today, you know what a deacon does? He's a server. So what does that mean? That means that he's going to shovel the snow. That means that he's going to go over to a house where there's no offspring. There's no family. There's no income. Listen, today we're a lot different situation with Social Security and stuff. We don't have quite the needs that they had back then. But there will be certain situations where there are widows that are in desperate need. He'll go over and have to fix the furnace. He'll go and maybe have to do the grocery shopping for her because she can't get out. That's what the deacon does. That's what the deacon does. The office of a deacon is a spiritual position. And finally, the office of a deacon is much misunderstood. And again, just so we understand, this office of a deacon is not about appointing a deacon as an official board member to represent the congregation. That's not what a deacon's about. See, the deacon is never said to rule in anywhere in Scripture. The deacon never rules. The pastor rules, the Bible says. So the deacon's position is only that of a servant. It is not a rulership position. He's not to look over the shoulder of the pastor make sure he's making all the right moves. No, we've got a budget for that. We've got some trustees right now for things like that. We've got some accountability in place through just obvious things. I mean, if you see something in my life and it's obvious where two or more have noticed the same problem, they see me out doing something I shouldn't be doing, two people say, hey, we saw that. Then you come to the, the leadership of the church and say, we got a problem. Pastor was out drinking. Pastor was out carousing. Pastor was out doing something. And we got witnesses. Not just me, but we got more than me. Saw it firsthand. Those are things that have to take place in churches. But it's not the deacon's job to run the church. It's the deacon's job to serve. At least that's what the Bible teaches. Okay? So that's a misunderstanding often, and it's something that has to be addressed. Because some people get the idea of, well, if you don't have deacons, then that means the pastor just does whatever he wants. Well, I don't think I do everything I want. There's a lot of things I'd like to do that I don't get to do. But I'm just saying this. It, It is not a position. That's not the job of the deacon. I think God can handle the pastor, and he puts things in place, people in place, to hold him accountable. I've gone to the trustee board on a number of occasions and asked them for their opinion on things. I need the advice of men that have been in life, lived a little bit of life, men that know a little bit about some things. And you know what? I'm, I've, taken, I've, I've not done things I wanted to do because they've said I didn't have 100% on the trustee board. Hey, listen, that's okay with me. It's on them. You know, I'm all right with that. I got something I got to talk to them about here after the service. I need all the trustees, by the way, after the service. I need to talk to them about an issue. I just want to get their opinion, what we should do about it. Well, we'll need that. Okay, that's helpful to me. And ultimately, the decision they make will be the decision I keep. 
and that's okay with me. Uh, so anyway, we got to get out of here. The nursery is screaming, bloody murder. Uh, some of you ladies are going, I am so glad I'm not in the nursery tonight. <laughs> My wife always says, how come you're always going long when I'm in the nursery? Well, tonight she's not. Okay, so anyway, let's go ahead and close. But the deacon's in a powerful position. It's a spiritual position. It's a servant position. And it's one that we need to be in mind of. And so when we get to the place in our church where the need arises, and I trust it will be soon, as our numbers grow and as the need grows, we will have to finally move in that direction. It will be a necessity. And when it becomes that, when it's a need, we'll do it. We will do it. And uh, until then, we won't do it. We'll do it when there's a need, just like the church at Jerusalem did. And so you be praying because we want God to bless our church in a way that it becomes a necessity. So let's be praying about God succeeding in our ministry and helping us. Father, we love you.